Welcome to the Service Academy Sorority, a space where women that have graduated from the service academies can share their stories and build a sense of camaraderie and sisterhood. This episode features Jocelyn Fox, a 2010 graduate from the U.S. Naval Academy. In this episode, you'll hear how Jocelyn has always managed to balance her creative passion for writing with a desire to be hands-on, whether it be with athletics, her pursuits at the academy or in the military, or during her current career in federal law enforcement. From being one of the founders of the field hockey team at the Naval Academy to writing 11 fantasy novels, this is a fun episode with a lot of twists and turns that really help to highlight how we all can develop different sides of our personality simultaneously. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Jocelyn. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell everyone where you're from, what school you went to, and when you graduated? I'm originally from a small town in Pennsylvania, south of Philadelphia, Strasburg, Pennsylvania. I went to the United States Naval Academy, and I graduated in 2010. Nice. And uh, can you start off uh, giving everybody one to two lines about who you are today? So today I work in federal law enforcement. I'm based in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm also an author. I've written 10 books so far, working on more. Uh, And that was a progression throughout my naval career as well. So I have a bachelor's in English, a bachelor's of science in English from the Naval Academy and also a master's in hydrographic science from the University of Southern Mississippi. Wow, that is so cool. Oh man, I'm so pumped because like <laughs> that is like two totally opposite worlds. Like it federal, is yeah. federal law enforcement and fantasy writer. Wow, this is crazy. All right, cool. Well, but to start, uh, let's go back to the beginning when you were deciding where to go to college. Uh, what made you choose a service academy? And what made you specifically choose the Naval Academy? Yeah, so when we were growing up, um, we were a sports family. My parents thought it was very important for us to, you know, have a physical outlet as well as do well in academics. So my brother and my sister and I all had our different sports that we played. We all played two sports, but we had our primary sport. And then if someone had a tournament, um, we made it into a family vacation. So my brother had an ice hockey tournament in Annapolis, Maryland, and that's where the Naval Academy is. Um, At the time, I was a freshman in high school, so we went to my brother's ice hockey tournament. My dad always looked up things for us to do, tours for us to take, museums and things like that, for us to check out as a family when we went on these trips um, for sports tournaments. And we ended up touring the Naval Academy, and I remember the first time I walked down Stribling, I just thought to myself, like, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it because uh, it was a feeling that I had never felt before. Um, you know, I was only 13, but I recognized it and I, and I knew that that was what I wanted to do. There was this sense of purpose. There was a sense of being part of something bigger than yourself. I could see all the camaraderie between the midshipmen. uh, And, you know, it was just such a beautiful place to me at that time. Um, So I remember walking around and seeing all the history and all the um, distinguished graduates. I really respected, like I read all of John McCain's books um, and I really respected him and everything he had done in his life. And I started researching more 
about the Naval Academy specifically. And that was what kind of lit that spark for me was um, that one trip and that tour. And then I set my sights on it and that's what I wanted to do. Wow. Wow. I'm getting goosebumps just listening to you because I've totally been there. I felt yeah. that. That's crazy. Yeah. I know that feeling so well. Um, so that's, um, that's interesting. So was there military in your family at all? So both of my grandfathers had served in the, um, one in the army and one in the Navy, but neither of them had made it a career and neither of them were officers. So I was the first in my family to consider uh, going to a service academy. Wow. Okay. So, so how did they, how did they take that when you told them that this is what you wanted to do? Looking back on it, I don't specifically remember if I put it, if I expressed it as well or as clearly as I just did that, hey, this is what I want to do. Um, but I made it known I'm very interested in this. And my dad particularly was always very supportive of whatever challenge that I wanted to take on. Um, my mom was very supportive as well, but my dad and I were kind of the dynamic duo and we would figure out, okay, what's the way forward and, and how do we accomplish this? Um, like in high school track, I decided I wanted to be a pole vaulter, right? And then, so it was me and my dad out at the track with, with a pole, <laughs> um, yeah. figuring out like, how do we do this? Um, so I remember having discussions with my dad and we kind of mapped out, okay, this is what they're looking for academically, this is what they're looking for sports-wise. Um, basically, you're at the beginning of high school, so I had, I had the opportunity to just kind of try to mold myself into exactly what they were looking for, which was pretty close to what I wanted and what I was naturally becoming anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Did you even look at the other academies? I went to the Coast Guard Academy, so I had a more distant family relative, I believe a great uncle who was um, an officer in the Coast Guard, and I didn't know him very well, um, but my parents knew him more than I did, and so they kind of offered the Coast Guard, like, well, it's, it's maritime based, so why don't you look at the Coast Guard Academy as well? Um, so I went to summer seminar for both the Naval Academy and the Coast Guard Academy, and I just still felt that really strong connection to the Naval Academy and Coast Guard was, you know, it was fine. I didn't have anything against it, but I just felt this draw towards, um, towards the Naval Academy. So, yeah, but I didn't really look at, um, West Point and I didn't really look at Air Force, quite frankly, I looked at them in kind of an academic sense of like, well, maybe, but the best I could explain it was like, no, I just really want to go to the Naval Academy. Like, I just really want to go here. No, so, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah I get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, at that time, what did you think you'd be doing after you graduated? I did not have a clear picture. I knew I wanted to be an officer, a leader. Um, I wanted to be a military officer. I wasn't a midshipman who came in with dreams of like Top Gun, like, oh, I, I know I want to be a fighter pilot. That's been my dream since I was five. I wasn't a midshipman who yeah. came in with that specific clear vision of who I was going to be afterwards. Gotcha. Okay. Ironically, that's the only thing people ever say. They're never like, I wanted to be a SWO when I was in <laughs> right? It's always like, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Yeah. 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 I get it. <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about the, the process of getting in and then that first day. So mm -hmm. was that process of getting in pretty smooth for you? Looking back on it, uh, yes. However, at the time, it was really 
quite stressful for me. I was, I still am um, a perfectionist. And so I was very much looking at kind of the unknowns that I couldn't control and preparing for them as best I could. Um, my dad and I, whenever we were, he was driving me to an event somewhere, didn't have to be related to the service academy, but um, we would practice like interviewing. He would pretend to be, you know, um, one of the panelists for the nomination interviews and we would practice interviewing for hours. Um, so looking back on it, it was very smooth, but at the time it felt very high stakes to me and it felt very, uh, it, it felt like I was reaching for something that I didn't quite know what I was going to do or how I was going to feel if I actually, um, if I actually grasped it. I totally get that too. I think like I started hyperventilating when I got in. I was like, oh my gosh, like what is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I was one of those that I, I had a kind of a chart and I was like, I know I can submit my actual package to the Academy itself on this date. So I had everything ready and I submitted it like the day that you could, um, mm. you know, that summer before your senior year. And then October... Um, I received a, a letter of assurance and that was a moment where I, I remember it very clearly. We had, we had this system at that point where if there was any mail that came in from the Academy itself or from one of the representatives or Senator or anything to do with the, the process of applying, um, my parents would like set it aside and Sometimes they would like hold it up to the light. I didn't know this until later, but sometimes they would like hold it up to the light and try and figure out like what is in this envelope um, before, before they gave it to me, try and read it or something like that. Yeah. Um, the day that I got my letter of assurance, we, my brother and sister and I would come home and I, you know, at that point I was a, a senior in high school. So we were all, um, we would hang out at home for a couple hours before our parents came home from work. So I went out to get the mail and I saw it was a very thin letter. And so I thought to myself, okay, this is probably either really good news or maybe it's bad news. I don't know. And I opened it and I was standing in our living room and I just remember, I remember screaming, like I just screamed. And my brother came running down from his bedroom upstairs because he thought something was, something terrible was happening. And I just remember looking up at him and I screamed at him, like, I got in, I got in. And wow. He, he ran over to me and he hugged me and he like lifted me up and swung me around. And, and I just remember like, again, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it because it was just one of those moments where I realized like, okay, this, this might actually happen. This is within reach. So, yeah. Oh, giving me chills. You're giving me chills. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so exciting. And I get it too. And that, and at that time, that was the biggest thing in your life going on. Mm -hmm. So I get why it felt For that sure. way. Um, okay. So let's talk about it. So Tell me about that first day, getting there and how the summer went. I was very nervous. I remember, I remember feeling really like nauseous. Um, I didn't really eat much that morning. We had driven down the night before. Annapolis was about like two, two and a half hours um, from my hometown. So not, not a long drive, but I was so anxious and trying to plan everything to the nth degree that my parents were just like, look, we're just going to drive down the night before we'll have a hotel. We'll be literally like 10 minutes from the Academy. So, um, I had cut my hair. I'd always had really long hair and I had cut it 
before arriving because I had heard that it wasn't a good idea to let them cut it for you. So I was trying to deal with this new hairstyle. I had no idea how to deal with. Um, and I reported to um, alumni hall where they were processing everyone through and said bye to my parents. Um, we got through the uniform um, issue with, you know, no issue. It's, it was a very strange feeling. It felt like an assembly line, you know, and you feel very impersonal. You've seen the camaraderie, but then this is the other side where it feels like, okay, I'm just a number or I'm just, yeah. you know, one in this assembly line of people that they just have to get through. Um, a memory that stands out to me and that I didn't, I didn't, I actually didn't tell my parents this until my graduation day. Um, we, I, I told them like, after I had received my commission. <laughs> um, there was a medical portion of in-processing and they had to draw blood and, and I ended up, essentially, um, I passed out <laughs> on in-processing day. Um, and, and that was pretty stressful because I was like, okay, well now I'm singled out, um, which it really wasn't that big of a deal, but to me at the time it was. Um, yeah. And then you, you get to see your parents again for, for a few minutes um, and you're in your white works with your little plebe cover. And I remember, I, I remember standing in front of Bancroft um, in Tecumseh Court as we took our oath. And I remembered having this kind of epiphany of like, okay, you've wanted this for the past four years and now you're actually here. And the reality of being here and having to do this work is much different than what it looks like from the outside. Um, mm -hmm. This is, this is going to be hard. Um, but I, I wanted it. So I was like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> awesome. um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so how did that summer go then? Did it like the rest of the summer, how did, was, mm -hmm. it, was it smooth for you? Was it a struggle? Um, it was relatively smooth. Like I struggled. I think many of us who go to service academies are the high achievers. And then you go and they start the process of showing you um, that you have a lot to learn and you're going to fail and you have to deal with failure. Um, mm -hmm. So that was hard for me. That like forced failure was hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, like, you, like you don't even know how to stand right. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. it was like, and they set you tasks that you like, they know the cadre know that you're going to fail. Yeah. Um, but they set them for you anyway. And then you have to figure out how to deal with not being able to do something <laughs> that you're told to do um, either because you don't know how to do it or it's just literally impossible and yeah. it's meant to be a teaching moment. So yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like you made it through at least that summer on a little unscathed, but you know, mm -hmm. it's ups and downs like normal, you know? Um, okay. So let's now talk about your time at the Academy. Uh, if you had to sum up your time at the Academy in one word, what would it be? In one word, I would say challenging. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that can be, both a, a positive challenging and in some instances a very um difficult kind of challenging if mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah um, makes total sense yeah i one of the things that my dad had told me before i left was you know hey 
this is going to be hard, but just remember they can't stop time, you know, make it from when you wake up to when you eat breakfast, make it from when you eat breakfast to lunch, make it from lunch to dinner. And I really, that helped me during plebe summer, but it also really applied during the academic year too, because it was that first year for me, it was a lot um, of learning how to manage time, learning how to manage my own you know, emotional ups and downs. Um, and they don't really talk about that a lot, or at least they didn't when, um, when I was there about, you know, Hey, like you're going to feel lonely. You're going to feel sad and that's okay. Um, here's some ways to deal with that. Um, but being away from home and then being put into this very high pressure environment, um, it was, it was challenging. So, um, challenging in both a, growth way um and then you know challenging in some ways that i look back on and i just want to give myself a hug you know You're like yeah. hey it's, it's gonna be okay <laughs> yeah uh, and it ironically i that advice that your dad gave you about like they can't stop time i've heard mm -hmm. that now a few times and i'm like man i wish someone had said that <laughs> to me <laughs> i think that's really it's really helpful because you're right it's very easy at an academy to kind of like like I'll make it to this hurdle and then this hurdle and this hurdle. Cause there's all these hurdles. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's, that's good advice. Your dad's a wise man. Um, all right. So, but let's start with some of maybe the highlights and some of the positive challenges and the growth points and the things that you remember the most um, mm -hmm. from the, the Academy. Let's start there. So definitely one of the high points for me was being a founding member of the field hockey team. Um, I, that was my sport when I was growing up. I started playing when I was seven. I loved it. It was, um, it was my thing, you know, in the athletic world. And my backup school had actually been a D2 school on the East Coast that had offered a field hockey, um, combination of field hockey and academic scholarship. It was my one backup school because my parents forced me to have a backup. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the end of my plebe year, the end of freshman year, for some reason, I still to this day don't know why, the outgoing superintendent sent his final message to everyone. And he had attached this document that was kind of his like last acts as superintendent. And for some reason, he had approved a field hockey team. Uh, and I remember like opening that document and I got so excited because I was like, oh, this is this, this is fantastic. Like I I could not, there, I knew there wasn't a hockey team when I got to the academy, but somehow there must be someone who is driving this. Um, mm. So I reached out to the athletic department and it turned out I, there wasn't, there wasn't anyone driving Crazy. that. Yeah. And so I said, well, hey, but it's, it's in the soup's final, you know, final letter to everyone. So, and they were like, well, yeah, it is, but we don't know who's in charge of it. Whoa. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I guess. I guess I'll be in charge of it. Um, wow. And, <laughs> that is so out cool. Of, yeah. Yeah. Coming out of Pleveer felt like this huge, like I was jumping off a cliff or something, but that was one of the most rewarding parts of my time. Um, I wanted to tear my hair out sometimes because we were trying to create this very, this new, this new team, this new culture and trying to create visibility and we didn't have funding. So there were like definitely all of these hurdles as you said before, um, but that group of, of women was just 
such a great group and we we got really close through all those uh challenges and like fighting to create this team uh so those are some of my fondest memories so so i have to know does that team still exist it does it does still exist look at you go i know (laughs) and and it's gone through a couple i mean i think any sports team does you know are you classified as a club sport are you an intramural i mean there's not unfortunately i think that there's not enough women at the academy to draw enough experienced players to make it a varsity sport, especially in D1, because that's a very challenging um, division. And, but we, we do still have a field hockey team and uh, they still, they still play. They have a lot of fun. And I I made it to a couple of games when I was stationed in Norfolk, they came down for a tournament in Virginia and that was really cool. That was like five years after I graduated. So wow. Um, wow. I got to go out to dinner with the team and kind of like talk to them about the team and the early days. It was just great. Um, that is so, yeah, so cool. It still exists. It's yeah. Like, you have a little legacy going on. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Um, well, that definitely sounds like a highlight for you. And it sounds like your freshman year, um, your plebe year might have been a little rough. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But um, mm. <laughs> were there any other. Um, highlights for you at the academy that you wanted to talk about? Hmm. I really enjoyed um, traveling during summer training. I got really, really fortunate in the summer trainings that I was assigned. Um, My senior enlisted coordinator or my senior enlisted for my company, um, our senior chief, he knew that I had also gone to summer seminar at the Coast Guard Academy. And so he called me into his office one day and he, I was a plebe at the time. And he said, Hey, they're looking for, um, rising youngsters. So this will be the summer between plebe and youngster year to go on this exchange with the coast guard Academy and go sail on their tall ship, the Eagle in the Caribbean for, for summer training. Do you want to go do this? (laughs) So I said, well, yeah, I want to go do this. And that was my first summer training was on this three masted tall ship, um, climbing the rigging and learning all the sails and uh, sailing around the Caribbean. So that was, that was fantastic. What um, a cool got, experience. Yeah. 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 And then I got to go to Japan. I experienced Japan um, during summer training and it was just, I, it reinforced the fact that I wanted to see the world, you know, like I just, I really loved going to other countries and experiencing other cultures and it, it reinforced that spark of yes, military service, but also I can see the world doing this. And it really helped me to keep that fire going. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. So what was going on with you and like your clarity about what you wanted to do post-graduation? Was that coming more into focus? What major did you choose? How did that Mm. work out for you? So I, chose to be an English major. I had, I had an inkling and I actually had conversations with my parents prior to going to the Naval Academy that um, it was okay to be an English major at the Naval Academy vice being an English major at a civilian school because you, had, you already had a career path after graduation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I knew I had that freedom uh, to choose whatever I wanted to study at the Naval Academy. And so I chose to be an English major. Um, and I also 
used a lot of my um, free classes or my um, the classes that you can choose. Like on electives, yes. <laughs> the word was escaping me. Um, yeah. Do foreign language. That was uh, Spanish and then Russian were my foreign languages that I studied as well. So um, that was what I chose to study. And as far as what I wanted to do after graduation, I really, I didn't have a super clear path for that. Um, I went through a phase where I thought very strongly that I wanted to be a Marine Corps officer. I had a professor that I really respected um, as both a professor and an officer. He was a Marine Corps captain um, and he taught electrical engineering, which was not one of my strong subjects, but he, his um, ability to communicate and the stories he told us about leadership development really kind of pulled me towards the Marine Corps. Um, unfortunately, my experience with the, screen, the summer screening program for those who wanted to go Marine Corps was a very, that was probably one of my worst experiences at the academy. Mm. Um, and so that was between my junior and senior years. I decided after that, well, I'm, I'm not going to be a Marine Corps officer. Um, so I decided to, to go for pilot. Um, I had had vision correction surgery um, and my eyes had corrected to the point where I, I could be a pilot. So that's what I put in for, for service selection by my senior year. So I definitely want to talk more about your lowlights at the Academy. So I want to start with this one that you just mentioned, if you don't mind, I'd like to hear a little bit more about like, what was it? What was it about that Marine Corps selection thing that mm. really was hard for you? It was challenging physically for me, but I knew that going into it. And the women who were in this summer screening program were very much the minority, even more so than at school itself. You knew you had to hold yourself to a higher physical standard than just the, the basics if you were going to go do Leatherneck. And um, my negative experience just really started because I got really sick. Um, we went out into the field for an overnight and it rained on us for like two days straight. We hadn't uh, packed any like spare uniforms or anything. So we were just in soaked wet uniforms the entire time. Um, we slept out in the rain. We, it was the whole nine yards. Um, and then after that, I, I just started feeling really sick. Like, you know, when you have a fever and you know it, but you're, I was trying to, you know, not show weakness. So I, I was pushing through, I PT'd, I, you know, very challenging PT. We had like our packs on and our rifles and we were doing um, push-ups and obstacle courses and things like that. And it got to the point where I could barely stand up and I went to the corpsman again and I, and I sat down and I, I still had my rifle. I was filthy from whatever obstacle course we had just done. And I remember sitting down and saying, I'm not leaving until you take my temperature. And the corpsman um, who had turned me away that morning with some Motrin said, hey, you're fine, just take Motrin. Um, he took my temperature and I had a 104 degree fever. Oh um, and they just, you know, I was just given Motrin and sent to my barracks room again. So I remember just being like, okay. And 
I was in some pretty, uh, pretty bad pain at the time. I didn't really know what was going on. So I just went to my barracks room. I went to sleep. Um, I ended up getting left in the barracks by myself for about three days. Um, I didn't have anyone there. Like the rest of the midshipmen went on a field training exercise and I had gone to the doctor and they had given me a note saying like I was sick, but they didn't really do any diagnostics at that point. Um, saying like, Hey, this is what it is. Um, so I, I was just left by myself and oh, I went man. down to the PX, like this little, one of the little tiny commissary stores. I bought myself like applesauce and pudding. I remember because that was all I could stomach at the time and Gatorade. And it took me like, you know, two hours to make this round trip. Cause I had to, I was wearing full sweatpants in like hundred degree heat. Cause I was just so sick. Um, and I had to stop and like sit down every, you know, couple of yards. Um, oh, my goodness. So yeah, that was a really, that really turned me off to the Marine Corps and looking back on it, I, you know, obviously it was a huge error on, on, on the, on the organizers parts, but I just decided then I was like, well, if this is how they treat their people, I'm not, this isn't something that I want to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that, that <laughs> definitely sounds like one of those challenging moments you were referencing in the beginning where it's like, you yeah. just want to go give yourself a big hug because oh, that, goodness. Oh, it was pretty gosh. terrible. And, um, like after the fact I was told, so I ended up having a, a kidney infection because it progressed. Oh. Um, it was like a UTI that had progressed to a kidney infection. Oh my was, goodness. That's yeah, intense. It, it was yeah. pretty terrible. And I was still having a lot of pain. Even after my fever was gone, I was done all the antibiotics and I was like, something, something's wrong. Something's not quite right. My left hip one morning I woke up and it was just frozen and I couldn't move it without excruciating pain. So I was told at the end of it all, um, once they figured out a couple months later, like, oh, this is probably what happened is you had a high fever, you were PTing with this weight on your back, and we think that you fractured your pelvis while you were doing this oh, because you goodness. had no, you, you know, you had no pain recognition beyond this, this fever that was kind of the primary feeling that you were having at the time, oh. right? So, uh, um, it was a mess. It was a mess, but I got through it. I decided, Hey, the Marine Corps isn't for me. Um, and I decided, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try and be a pilot and see what this is all about. So. That's all right. All right. Well, before we get to the pilot thing, um, were there any other low lights at the Academy that you wanted to share? And I just want to say like, I get, that is a big low light. Like I get it. That's, that's actually the first time I've like, talked about it to anyone other than my family or my close friends, because that was very challenging. Um, yeah. On so many levels, <laughs> I mean, physically, emotionally, mentally, I mean, especially uh, at, at any age, at any age, when you feel physically uncomfortable like that, like you just want someone to give you a hug or to take care of you and you're mm -hmm. alone. So it's hard enough that you're feeling so miserable and that you don't know what's going on. And then you're alone. Oh, my heart breaks. Oh, yeah. Me. And I definitely felt like, I felt like, oh, I, this means I'm not strong enough. Like as, as sure. a female, as a woman, you're like, okay, I already have to perform at a higher level because 
people are looking at me in a different way. Right. Yeah. Or I stand out more, you know, I'm more memorable because I'm a woman. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> to be like, Hey, Oh, I punched out because I had a very good reason, but mm. also I didn't make it through because, um, because I got sick and I couldn't control that. But to me at the time, it felt like, it felt like a failure to me too. Yeah. And um, you're a perfectionist. So I get that uh -huh. too. Yeah. yeah. yeah I get it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, were there any other major lowlights you wanted to talk about? I struggled a little bit with just the combination of personalities in my company at the time. Um, and, you know, I think some of that is just, you know, you're, you're 18 years old or you're 20 years old, whatever age you were at the time. And you're in this pressure cooker and all of us are growing up and you have different, everyone, everyone has to grow up in, in their different ways. You know, you have different mm. things that you're good at. You have different things you're not so good at as individuals. So sometimes I struggled with relating to and understanding, um, different personalities than me. So like I was very much the perfectionist as we've discussed and I was very much a rule follower because I felt like I worked really hard to get here. I don't have a safety net per se. Like I don't have family in the military. I don't have, I'm not a varsity athlete. Like I'm here because I worked really hard to get here and I don't want to mess it up. So yeah. that came out for me as like being a very strict rule follower. And mm. it was, it was hard for me sometimes to relate to people who had a different perspective, like, oh, it's, you know, a, little, a more laid back perspective or a perspective of, you know, not following all the rules all the time, maybe. Um, and some of them are artificial too, right? Especially when you're plebes and you have yeah. all these ridiculous things you have to go do. So that was challenging for me sometimes, but looking back on it, it was just that, you know, we're all so young at the time yeah um, it doesn't feel like it to us but looking back on it that's that's what I feel like that was too yeah and given everything you shared I think I think it's illuminating to me probably why that that first year was especially tough for you between just you know being away from your family but also just like you're a perfectionist and you're a plebe and there's all these rules and um just trying to follow everything to the T and mm -hmm. connect. Yeah. It just, uh, I get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, so tell me a little bit now as we approach graduation. So you had decided that you wanted to be a pilot. So mm -hmm. tell me how that all went for you and, and then, you know, what happened after you graduated? I yeah, I was really excited. I was really, I just remember, feeling on graduation day like okay you know i felt as a plebe on induction day that this is never going to end right this is a journey that like you know they can't stop time but it also feels like this is never going to end yeah never ending and, for sure yeah <laughs> yeah and so uh i had this this feeling of you know maybe kind of like Pinocchio felt like, oh, I'm a, I'm a real person now again. Like I'm a, I have my commission. I did, I, I completed that part of the journey. Um, so I felt very proud and my family was very proud of me. I had taken a flight school date, a report date of, I believe it was November. It was a little bit like later in the fall. And I had the opportunity to, as an ensign, work in the English department um, at 
the Naval Academy for those months before I reported to flight school. And that's a very fond memory for me. I really enjoyed, Mm. I was allowed uh, to teach a couple of summer school classes, like as a substitute professor kind of thing, Um, very light lifts and with supervision, but I really enjoyed that. Um, And I was finishing my first novel at the time. I had started writing The Iron Sword during my uh, last semester at the Naval Academy as a independent study with one of the English professors. And so I was like living out in Annapolis on my own, um, kind of free from Bancroft Hall. And I would walk to work every day in, in Sampson Hall in the English building and get to see my professors um, from the English department and work with them, you know, not quite on a peer level, but that's how they treated me. It was, it was very, um, it was very gracious of them. Um, and that was a really, that was a really good you know, six months. Mm. And then I reported to flight school in Pensacola, um, API in November, and it, it pretty quickly (laughs) went off the rails for me there. Um, I didn't have a natural aptitude for flying. It, It scared me quite frankly. Um, and I didn't like the fact that there were all these factors that you couldn't, control combined with the fact, you know, you're essentially in such a dangerous position, you know, you're in this aircraft and um, yes, you learn emergency procedures and all these other things, but it was very difficult for me to conceptualize, okay, this is how I'm supposed to move the aircraft in, in three dimensions. And then also if something really bad happens, I have to remember all these emergency procedures and and things like that. So I didn't enjoy flying. Um, but I was also very stubborn and I, I gutted through the initial kind of, I believe it was 30 hours, um, of flight time in a, in a small aircraft in a Piper Cub. And I did my first solo flight in that. Um, and I, I got through it, but then when we were in the academic portion of API, um, I, I didn't score high enough, uh, to continue on. So at the time there was kind of this artificial management that they were doing with the number of young officers that were in flight school. So the word that we had got was there's too many ensigns in flight school. And so we're raising the threshold of academics. So essentially for my class, instead of 80% being the passing threshold for us, I believe it was somewhere around a 93% average. Um, on all of our academic tests and I was doing okay until we got to our navigation test. I just didn't, I wasn't great at it and it was kind of a sore subject. I wasn't, I had struggled with the navigation classes at the Academy. I had to work really hard at them. And, uh, I remember I got a 78 on that test. So it was kind of insult to injury. Like I didn't actually pass it. So the 80% threshold was still the technical passing, threshold. But I was also told right after that, that there's no way your average can uh, be high enough for that, that higher line that we're imposing right now as Mm -hmm. a means of controlling how many students we have. So essentially, you know, you, you didn't really fail out, but you failed out. And so that was probably the Jan, the January after my graduation where 
Um, I applied for lateral, the lateral transfer board. Um, I knew I still wanted to be a, an officer. And so I applied for intelligence. I, I did my due diligence. I put in the best package that I could, um, which looking back on it, you know, it's, it's hard because you're an ensign and you don't have any other experience really than just, I was at school. Mm. Um, and I got a call from the intelligence community manager and it was like the day of this board. Mm. And she said, I don't usually do this. That was like the first thing she said to me, I don't usually do this, but I needed to call to tell you that I only have three spots and you're my number four. So if you want to stay an officer, if you want to stay in the Navy, you need to call the surface warfare community manager within an hour and tell him, like, tell him that he can pick you during this board or else like you're not going to be an officer anymore. Mm. Um, And ironically, SWO was like the one service selection that I was very adamant about during my time at the academy that was, I never want to be a SWO. Like, I never want to do that. And I sat there and I called my dad and I was like, I, I think I, I'm going to call and I'm going to be a SWO because I want to be an officer. I want to, I want to continue my time. I don't want to just punch out. So I did. And um, so I got assigned to the USS Mitcher out of Norfolk. I reported there um, beginning of March, I believe it was from Pensacola, brand new, did not have any real you know, we, we didn't have a, a basic officer course for SWO at that time. So all I had was what I knew from the academy. Um, and we, the ship was deploying uh, 10 days after I reported on board. Um, mm. So I still was getting lost on the ship and I didn't know where the pilot house was and all of these things. And uh, we, we set out for a seven month deployment. So that was... Wow. Uh, that was a, a wake up call. I go, well, welcome to the Navy kid. You know, here you go. Yeah. Um, oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. So how did that go for you? And, and how did you, cause you said when we started this, if I remember correctly, you said mm-hmm. you're in federal law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yes. So tell me what happened. <laughs> so, um, that first deployment was so challenging, but also so rewarding for me. Um, Uniquely, the USS Mitcher is still an all-male crew with female officers, and I did not know that when I was assigned to it. Um, there's no female enlisted. Um, I was one of four female officers on on the ship when we deployed um, when we deployed in 2011 for the first time, um, right after I got there. So there was myself and I had a female ensign as a roommate. Our weapons officer was a female and then we had a female XO. And I just remember, you know, kind of going back to my dad's advice, like they can't stop time, make it from meal to meal. And also I just decided, I was like, you know what? Grow where you're planted. Like you, you can do this, but not only can you do this, like you're going to be, as good as a swell, as outstanding as you can be, because like to do anything else is a disservice to the people that you're serving with. So, you know, I just decided, I was like, okay, um, mouth shut, ears open. I'm going to learn everything I can. And 
that really served me well on the first deployment. Um, I went from, you know, not knowing anything really, um, other than the basics that I had brought with me from my navigation classes at the Naval Academy to, uh, I was very close to getting my surface warfare pin and qualifying as officer of the deck uh, when we came back from that deployment. So it was really intense. It was also really rewarding. We stopped in, in some very unique port visits um, and that set me up for success um, for the rest of my time as a surface warfare officer. So um, I got to observe leadership styles that I really admired. And I also had um, some really challenging moments with, uh, with leadership on the boat. So, um, but overall it was, I look back on it now as, as a very intense extended learning experience where mm. it really taught me the value of, you know, Hey, it doesn't matter that you're an ensign sometimes like it, you've been here for five minutes. Um, and this, this bosun's mate who is junior to you in rank is senior to you in experience. So maybe ask them questions and listen to what they have to say and really absorb as much of their knowledge and experience as you can. Mm. Um, and I think that was one of the most important leadership lessons that I learned was, you know, Hey, it doesn't matter how junior someone is or how, um, how senior you are to them in rank, everyone has something to teach you. Mm. So being open to that um, in a professional and respectful way, of course, but being open to that pays dividends um, in many different ways. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so, so how long did you, did you stay in and, and how did you tell me what happens next? Let's just start. Okay. Um, <laughs> So uh, we did our first deployment and I, uh, as a SWO and I came back and my, um, executive officer at the time, at, like nearing the end of my first tour, um, he wanted me to, in our parlance, we called it fleeting up. Like you stay on the same ship for your second division officer tour, which it was not common and captains could only choose a certain amount, a uh, certain number of their officers to fleet up, um, depending on the billets available, et cetera. Right. So he, um, he, he opened the discussion with me and said, Hey, you know, I would really like you to fleet up and stay on the ship for your second tour because he was going to fleet up and become the captain. And I thought about it and I said, you know, I think that's a, a really interesting idea. Um, let me think about it and let me, kind of think about what billet I would want. I had taken over as our BBSS officer, our visit board search and seizure officer, that prior year as a lieutenant junior grade. So that was one of the jobs I enjoyed the most for sure on the ship. Um, so I had a team of 14 sailors and we were um, essentially I hesitate to say the SWAT team of the ship, but we were more trained. Um, we went through more advanced training as far as, um, you know, security forces and clearing a vessel. And we were certified to do non-compliant boarding. So, you know, um, if we had to go and board a ship that had been pirated or, or something similar to that, um, like we were the team that was going to do it if a ship's team had to do it. Um, so I, I had already been creating this 
team on the ship that I felt, okay, if I can stay here for another two years, we're going to have a really good program and we're going to have really fantastic baseline, you know, to hand over to my successor and, and a really solid program for them to keep, um, to keep as a legacy on this ship. So I went back to my XO and I said, Hey, sir, I, I really appreciate the offer. Um, so you had mentioned you wanted me to be damage control assistant, but if something happens, if we're fighting the ship, I can't leave the ship. So I would like to be fire control officer, which deals with the, um, the spy one Delta radar. And I, I, my condition is that I, I want to continue to be the boarding officer, you know, like I want to continue to have this team and, and be the head, uh, the officer for that program. And he looked at me, uh, he was very good at, um, he was very good at understanding people and understanding what motivated people, um, looking back on it. And so he looked at me and he said, okay, um, okay, Miss Fox, um, what do you think about going to rescue swimmer school? I said, okay, sir, but I'm not a, I'm not a swimmer. Uh, I'm going to need time to, go do the prep work for this. And if you're okay with that, then, then yes, like I'll go do that. And he said, okay, just make sure your, your job on the ship is taken care of and you have the latitude to, you know, take the time that you need uh, to prepare for it. So the ship went into the yards, um, which is, you know, they were upgrading the engineering systems and things of that nature. And for the next about, I think it was about six months, I went, there was a program in Norfolk where it was a preparation for rescue swimmer school. Um, so as a candidate, you could go and essentially they would, you know, uh, PTU and you would swim. And uh, it was really challenging um, for about probably four hours, um, like four days a week. And then I would go to the ship in the afternoon and, and, uh, make sure that my division was good and do all my work there and stand my duty days. Um, and then I, I got to fleet up. Um, I became the fire control officer and I got to go to rescue swimmer school. So that was um, probably the most physically challenging training I've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, we, to my knowledge, we haven't ever official officially verified um, like with the Navy itself, but to our knowledge, based on, our instructors and all the photographs of all the other classes in the hallways at rescue swimmer school. We were the first class to start with two women and graduate with two women. So that wow. was pretty cool. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So I ended up being the class leader too, which was very, you know, I keep using this word challenging. I need to find a different word, but, um, <laughs> well, it's your word. So it makes it sense. is. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, a great experience. It was also just so tough. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but it really showed me that, you know, Hey, you can, you can do really hard things. Like you can do mm. these things. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a favorite memory too. Yeah. Awesome. So, okay. So tell me, so why did you decide to get out and how did you end up where you are today? Okay. So, I decided during, I was probably right before our second deployment, I just decided, you know, hey, there are highlights to my job as a surface worker officer, but 
I saw the career path ahead of me and I just decided, I was like, I love, I love being a rescue swimmer. I love being a boarding officer. Like I love being hands-on and in the mix and out and doing things out in the field, so to speak. And to my eyes, all of that was kind of being taken away from me in that career progression. Mm. Um, so I, I was just kind of like, you know what, like I, I don't want to continue on as a slow. I've kind of, I've done everything that I personally wanted to do here. You know, like I got to do all these amazing things and build this team and be a swimmer and it's been great, but this is not for me. Um, so I applied again for lat transfer, lateral transfer into the intelligence community. And my captain was very supportive. Um, I'm very grateful to him for being so supportive. It's not always the case. Mm. So I thought the intelligence community was, was where I wanted to go. And I, again, got told like, Hey, there's not room for you. Your, your group's locked out. Mm. So I ended up right before my last deployment with the ship, um, getting notified that like, Hey, the meteorology and oceanography community has openings and they like your application package. Would you consider that? So I talked to a few METOC officers, um, they kind of gave, they kind of gave you the highlight reel of like, oh, we do some support um, support billets for naval special warfare, and we think you'd be a really good fit for that. Um, which I don't blame them, um, but mm. <laughs> so I accepted that, and I knew I was not transferring as we went on our last deployment uh, or my last deployment with the ship. And it was during that deployment that there was a federal law enforcement agent who came out to our ship. And I talked to them and I kind of was just like had another light bulb moment where I was like, wow, like, what do you mean? I could be in the field my entire career and no one's going to tell me like, oh, you, you can't actually be on the ground or in the mix, like doing things that are hands-on. You, you have to go be a manager. You have to be a supervisor, this, um, this path, you know, um, so then I decided, I was like, okay, I think that's what I want to do. I'm going to give me talk a shot because I already said I would. Um, but that's where that seed was planted. So after that deployment, I lot transferred. I went down to Stennis Space Center in Mississippi, um, right outside of New Orleans. And I was attached to the fleet survey team. And it's the only unit in the Navy that does um, small footprint hydrographic surveys. So essentially you're collecting really high, high fidelity um, geospatial data that is fed back to various um, agencies like NGA um, and made into like actual nautical charts. So that's where I did my master's degree and it was a really good experience. Um, but at that point I knew, okay, the Navy, I, I've, I've done what I wanted to do. Um, so I was in the application process uh, for my current job during that time period. And um, it, it kind of felt like applying to the service academy again, quite frankly. It's, it's a pretty long process. Um, yeah. Federal law enforcement definitely is a long yeah, process. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yep. So then in 2018, I, I put in my paperwork. I knew I had, um, I knew I had a job waiting for me. It was essentially my, my dream job. Um, I'm mm -hmm. so so happy like sometimes it's just one of those things where I stop and I'm like wow like I actually get to do this like this is um, uh, so yeah. that's where you are today that's where you mm -hmm. are today that yep. is awesome and I have to just say this whole time you've had this other 
little personal passion career on the side, mm-hmm. which, which actually isn't a little thing um, <laughs> because you're a fantasy writer. You've written, you said yes. 10 novels. Yes. I actually, I have them all kind of stacked in front of me right now because I, I, I just wanted some like moral support from my books um, during this <laughs> podcast. But yeah, um, I, I've written 10 novels and they're all in a interconnected um, universe, so to speak. So there's a main series, the Fae War Chronicles. There's seven books in that series. And then there's two kind of book ending trilogies. Actually, I remembered incorrectly. I have 11. <laughs> so I just released <laughs> one back in May. So, um, and then there's two trilogies on either side that like one is more historical fantasy and takes place before the main timeline. And then the other trilogy is more of an urban fantasy. And it actually takes place like con- in, in our time, in our world, um, concurrent with parts of like the main books. Um, so yeah. and, and tell people where can they find these books? They are available on Amazon. So you just search my name or you can search the Fae War Chronicles. Um, but yeah, just search Jocelyn Fox and you'll see all of them lined up there for you. I love this. I just oh. love that you have this, um, cause you know, the military law enforcement, even athletics, you know, the Naval Academy, it's all very like masculine energy. And then mm-hmm. you have this like creative outlet for your expression and you've been doing it your whole life and you did it throughout mm-hmm. your Navy career. And you're not just doing a little thing here. I mean, 11 books, girl, that is intense. It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. it. That's so awesome. So, Thank so you. awesome. And did you find that was an outlet for you, mm-hmm. you know, throughout your time? I always had you know, some sort of creative project on the, you know, kind of in the background as I was going through the Naval Academy. It, it was a really good outlet for me. Um, and it was something very familiar that I brought from, from home, from my, you know, my life before the military. Um, so it provided mm-hmm. kind of a, a very comforting and a very, um, just a very familiar escape for me. I just love it. I think mm-hmm. it's awesome. Jocelyn. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it sounds like you just started on this law enforcement journey. Um, mm-hmm. And it sounds like you, you're still going to keep writing because that's what you, that's what you do. Um, mm-hmm. That's amazing. So, all right. So now I just have to know, looking back after everything you just shared, how do you feel about that initial decision to attend the Naval Academy? I'm really grateful that I decided to go there and I am grateful for all the opportunities it's provided me because um, my writing wouldn't be what it is without the real world adventures that I got to go on um, all the places I got to see and the things I got to do. And so I I think that's a really important part of it too. Um, I don't think I would be in my current career if I hadn't, you know, gone to the Naval Academy, failed out of flight school, (laughs) right. And, um, become a slow and then met, you know, uh, a law enforcement agent where I work now. So it's Mm. as a writer, when I look back on it and I'm like, yes, that's, that's where the plot started. That's where this journey started. So Mm. I'm really grateful that I went there. Yes. Very well stated. Um, all right. Well, before we go, 
Do you have any parting words for listeners, perhaps a key message for your fellow Mm -hmm. Service Academy sisters, Jocelyn? A personal motto for me, um, I really... I really enjoy the writings of Marcus Aurelius. I think he talks about obstacles in a really applicable way for everyone who has gone to a surface academy, who's still in the military, who is navigating civilian life. Um, And the phrase that I often repeat to myself from him is the obstacle is the way. Um, And so that's, I, I think, what I would like to leave everyone with is that sometimes you know, the failures, what you see as failures or what you see as obstacles are going to be those doors that open into these paths that you never expected. I love that. And that is the truth. (laughs) Don't live a safe life. Yeah, exactly. You don't grow when you live a safe life. So um, awesome. All right. And finally, you already mentioned where people can find your books and I will definitely put that in the show notes, Um, but Mm -hmm. also just let people know where they can find you in general. Um, I'm on Instagram at jocelyn.a.fox. That's my handle on Instagram. You can also find a Facebook page, an author page um, on Facebook at author Jocelyn A. Fox. And uh, those are the main places you can find me uh, in addition to Amazon. Awesome. All right, Jocelyn. Well, it's been amazing hearing your story. I know listeners will get a lot of great insight from hearing how you've balanced these really cool two sides of your life. Um, (laughs) Do you want to give listeners actually one random fun fact before we go? So when I was in kindergarten in the way back times, uh, I discovered that I could wiggle my ears. And so I told my kindergarten teacher that I was actually a fairy child who had been, you know, kidnapped and brought to the mortal world. And I like literally had half of my class convinced because I would show them that I could wiggle my ears. And that was was one of the first stories that kind of gained traction. Oh my gosh. I was just going to say that is so fitting for you. Perfect. Perfect. I love that. Amazing. All right. Well, that is definitely a fun note to end on. So um, Jocelyn, I really appreciate you sharing your story with the Service Academy sorority. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit the Service Academy sorority website to see photos, comprehensive show notes, and contact information for each guest. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. In addition, if you enjoy what you heard here today, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. And if you'd like to be featured on an upcoming episode, please feel free to submit your contact information on our website at www.serviceacademysorority.com.